0: Picture this. It's March 18th, 1997 in Los Angeles, California, and a little after 4pm at the intersection of Lancashire and Ventura Boulevards, one after the other, two cars pull to a stop at a red light. A black Buick Regal and a green Mitsubishi Montero. As the two vehicles sit alongside each other, the driver of the Mitsubishi, a 31-year-old bald black man wearing a green sweatsuit, begins to stare and eventually yell threats at the driver of the Buick, a 40-year-old white man who looks like a hippie, sporting a bushy mutton-chop mustache and a hat with a marijuana leaf on it. The driver of the Mitsubishi says that they should both pull over so that they can fight and he can shoot him. The driver of the Buick agrees, and as the light turns green, the Mitsubishi pulls over to the side of the street, and the Buick speeds away. Or, I guess, as much as a 1990 Buick Regal can speed. The Mitsubishi takes off in chase, driving hazardously in order to close the gap, at one point even driving into oncoming traffic. He finally catches the Buick when it stops for a red light at the intersection of Ventura and Regal Place. Surrounding witnesses hear the driver of the Mitsubishi shouting, and then pointing his fist out the window of the car. The driver of the Buick thinks he has a gun, and ducks below the windows. When he re-emerges, it's with a machine pistol, and he fires off two rounds into the door. The first misses and hits a gym bag, but the second connects with the driver of the Mitsubishi, hitting him in the right armpit, puncturing his lung, piercing his heart, and ultimately killing him. Before he dies, but while he's experiencing massive blood loss, he pulls a U-turn and stops the car in the parking lot of a nearby convenience store, where two officers of the California Highway Patrol just happened to be getting some coffee. As the driver of the Buick pulls into the lot and approaches the Mitsubishi with his gun drawn, the officers order him to freeze and drop the weapon, whereupon he reveals that he's an undercover officer with the LAPD named Frank Liga. It's not too hard to identify the victim, either, The body slumped over in the front seat of the Mitsubishi is none other than Officer Kevin Gaines, who at that point had been at the LAPD for seven years. What, on the surface, may appear to be a standard case of road rage would eventually come to reveal one of the most notorious, widespread, and depraved cases of police corruption and criminality in modern American history. Today, I'd like to talk about Versace shirts, bank robberies, drug dealer cops, 1990s LA, the Rampart scandal, and so, so much more. Thanks for tuning in this week. You're listening to Hidden History. I'm Ellis Tucci, and this is episode 128, Crash. Hidden History is always available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and www.hiddenhistory.show. If you like this episode, then consider subscribing or sharing with a friend. This episode goes out to Big Mood, who's Hidden History's newest supporter on Patreon. If you'd like to join them, then there's a link in the description. But before you go giving me any money, you should know that starting with this episode, Hidden History is switching from twice to once per month. I'm just one guy, so sometimes I need to shift around my time. We shall see if this is a permanent change, but it very well may not be. And with that, let's get on to the episode. This is one of the few episodes where I don't have to start out this section by saying that first, we need to go back a hundred years. We can actually pick up right where we left off, in the parking lot of an AM-PM at the base of the Hollywood Hills. Eventually, LAPD homicide detectives arrived on the scene and found evidence that supported Liga's story, including a pistol registered to Gaines with a round in the chamber sitting on the passenger seat. The lead investigator assigned to the case, Russell Poole, began to tug at the strings of something much larger the moment he opened Gaines's wallet, and this loyal officer of the LAPD who was supposed to be supporting a wife and two children on less than $50,000 a year had nine high-limit credit cards, a receipt for a single lunch totaling $952.00. What's more, Poole soon heard from members of Gaines' division that he would regularly come to work wearing $1,000 Versace shirts.
1: At home, he had
0: a BMW, a Ford SUV, and a Mercedes with the plates It's OK IA, a reference to the LAPD Internal Affairs Division. The Mitsubishi that he was driving at the time of the shooting was registered to his girlfriend, Sharitha Knight, the ex-wife of Suge Knight, the Death Row Records CEO and a highly connected figure in the criminal world of Los Angeles, particularly within the Piers and the Blood street gangs. Gaines, it seemed, even though he had a wife and children at home, lived in Sharitha's mansion in Hollywood. Further investigation showed that Gaines's lavish lifestyle was funded by drug trafficking as well as moonlighting as security for Suge Knight, which was a common practice among officers looking to get a taste. Investigating deeper into Gaines, it became clear that not only was he brazenly corrupt, but also personally unhinged. One bizarre case in 1996 had him calling 911 about a shooting at Shanitha Knight's mansion and gave an accurate description of himself as the suspect. When the police arrived, they found no shooting, but instead a belligerent Gaines, who seemed insistent on tussling with the officers. Though he himself had at that point been an LAPD officer for six years, he screamed about how he quote, fucking hated cops, and eventually had to be handcuffed, but was not arrested and no charges were filed. Mind you, making a phony 911 call is a felony. Internal affairs stalled until his case died on the vine, and Gaines unsuccessfully sued the city for millions of dollars for damaging his quote, psychological well-being, which to me really jumps out as the point of all his yelling about hating cops. He was trying to provoke them into beating him so he could collect a big cash settlement. Another thing that clues us in on this, as well as gives us some insight into Gaines's ego, is that the lawyer he hired to sue the city was Milton Grimes, the head lawyer on the Rodney King case, and the one credited in getting the $3.8 million settlement. Poole's investigation into the connections between Gaines, as well as other officers' relationships with Suge Knight and Death Row Records, was stymied by the leadership of the LAPD, who insisted that there was simply not enough evidence to warrant launching an official criminal investigation. Eventually, Poole was told, quote, Gaines is dead. Forget it. Well, it may seem like the trail of this corruption investigation had been brought to an abrupt end, soon enough, it was gonna be blown wide open. The link established, indirectly, by the other member of the road rage incident, Officer Frank Liga. The fact that a white officer had killed a black officer very much heightened racial tensions amongst the LAPD, made worse by the fact that, by multiple accounts, including some of his own words recorded in 2013, Liga is a pretty racist guy. In retaliation for the killing of Gaines, an officer named Rafael Ray Perez stole a pound of cocaine pivotal to one of Liga's cases from the evidence room at the LAPD's Rampart Station. Not only would it be an embarrassment for Liga, but it would turn Perez a hefty profit when sold on the street. The disappearance of Liga's cocaine would be the straw that broke the camel's back. Two months earlier, in March 1997, the LAPD had noticed that six pounds of cocaine was missing from its evidence room. They were said to have been checked out by an officer, Joel Perez, but they were in reality checked out by a disguised Ray Perez. Using a patsy with the same last name was too close to home, and with the theft of the Laga cocaine, Ray Perez became the primary suspect. It turned out that, for years, Perez had been stealing cocaine from the evidence locker, selling it on the street, and returning the bags to the police station filled with bisquick. Eventually, all the contents of the evidence locker would be destroyed, along with any traces of his crimes. In an audit of the evidence room, the LAPD found that of the eight quantities of cocaine currently in evidence, six of them were bisquick or flour. But hold on, hold on, hold on. Ray Perez has entered this story quite near to his downfall, but in order to understand the breadth of what would come to be known as the Rampart Scandal, we have to look at how Ray Perez rose to an elite position within an LAPD anti-gang unit known as CRASH. CRASH, which stands for Community Resources Against Street Hoodlums, was a special anti-narcotics and gang division of the LAPD that was established in 1979. Each police station had its own unit, usually composed of 12 to 20 officers who formed an insular, essentially self-governing force within the LAPD. Crash units were given total freedom to enforce the law however they chose, if at all. They had such slogans as, Some rise by sin and some by virtue fall, and We intimidate those who intimidate others. They threw parties, attended by lieutenants and captains, when an officer shot or killed someone. They even gave officers celebratory plaques. If they didn't die, a playing card featuring a red heart with two bullet holes. If they did, a black one. The black cards were more prestigious. But to dial in on our subject, who was Rafael Perez? How did he become involved in Crash? When did he become dirty? and what was the extent as well as the manifestations of this systemic corruption. Rafael Perez was born on August twenty-second, 1967, in Puerto Rico. His parents moved around during his childhood, eventually settling in Philadelphia, where he graduated high school in 1985. That same year, when he turned 18, he joined the Marine Corps and was stationed in Kittery, Maine. By all accounts, he was a skilled and driven Marine, receiving multiple meritorious promotions during his time in Kittery. It was also during this time that he met Laurie Charles, an Air Force specialist at a base across the Piscataqua River in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. About six months later, they would be engaged. On August 6, 1986, they got married. Soon after, in a cost-cutting measure, the federal government announced that it was closing the Marine barracks in Kittery, which was turned over to the Portsmouth Naval Shipyard on September 18th, 1987. Given that Perez was the only one of the 77 Marines who was married to another military member, they gave him a choice of where he'd like to be stationed. They almost stayed in Maine, but Lori Perez wanted to go home to California, and so the couple moved to Los Angeles at the end of 1987. Once there, Perez expressed interest in joining the LAPD, which he saw as an elite police force. He would later say in his February 2000 statement to the court that he had always dreamed of being a police officer. He would at other times say that he grew up watching shows like Chips and Adam-12, which ironically takes place at the Rampart police station. But anyway... A few months after they moved to Los Angeles, Perez took the test to join the LAPD and passed. At some concurrent time in 1988, he also began to have an affair with a female Marine, spending weekends away from home and telling his wife he was with friends. His infidelity was eventually exposed when the other woman sent a postcard to his home. Lori divorced him, which finalized in 1989, the same year that he graduated from the police academy. They remained on friendly terms. At first, Perez was just a patrol cop and was, by the account of other LAPD officers, well-liked and a, quote, good cop. Accordingly, he rose quickly through the ranks and in 1992 was assigned to a position on an undercover drug-buying team for the LAPD's West Narcotics Bureau, a plum assignment indeed. It was here that he was partnered with an LAPD veteran named David Mack. And it's Mack who introduces Perez to this world of corrupt policing where narcotics officers were heavily involved in crime and drug dealing. Mack would routinely stick up street dealers, steal their drugs, probably beat and arrest them, and then sell their drugs on the streets through a friend. On October 26, 1993, during one of these drug deals, Mack also taught Perez that the police could get away with murder. The official story was that during one of these buys, the dealer had drawn his pistol and put it against Perez's head, and Mac, saving his fellow officer's life, drew his own gun and shot the dealer in the head, killing him. Witnesses, however, paint a different picture saying that an unarmed man had approached and stuck his head inside the window of Mac's car, whereafter Mac shot him in the head, the man stumbled away and tried to run down the sidewalk, and Mac got out of the car and, well laughing, emptied his gun into the man's back. Mac would eventually receive a commendation for this incident. Perez worked with Mac for four years, and Mac mentored him in the ways of corruption, showing him how easy it was to abuse the power they were given to reap vast rewards. In 1996, Perez was called on to join the elite crash unit at the LAPD's Rampart Station, possibly the most desirable of any crash assignment. You see, the Rampart Division, an area of 7.9 square miles consisting of multiple neighborhoods between Wilshire Center and downtown Los Angeles, was home to approximately 30 distinct gangs, including some of the largest in LA. Once in the Rampart crash unit, it seems that Perez began to essentially completely ignore the law. At some point prior to 1998, stealing from street dealers ceased to be a scalable business model in his growing cocaine business, and he began to steal from the Rampart Station Evidence Room. He used his position and immunity as a crash officer to affect considerable power in the criminal world of Los Angeles. If someone did not do what he said or did not give him what he wanted, he and his partner Nino Durden would arrest them— plant evidence on them, sometimes drugs, sometimes a gun, sometimes both, then give false testimony in court in order to send them away for years. To give you a real example of this, here is some audio from a 2015 episode of the show Mugshots, featuring an interview with Hugo Madrid, one of the many people Officer Perez framed and sent to prison.
1: I was hanging out with a couple buddies after a Sweet 16 party. We we're at a hotel, just having a couple of beers. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, four police officers run into the uh, hotel building and uh, start, you know, tossing us around. You know, put your hands up in the air, freeze. I started to ask uh, Officer Perez, you know, what's going on here? He said you said you're gonna let us go, just take our picture. And he turns around, and looks at us, and says, "Don't act dumb." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" He goes, don't, "Don't act stupid. Don't don't tell me you don't know about the gun and the dope." I'm like, "What are you talking about?" So you know. It clicked in right there that I was getting framed. So when I went into the courtroom, I got up. I, I, I asked the judge, can I speak up for myself? And uh, the judge made the, the, uh, the DA leave the room and let me talk to her one-on-one. So she tells me, Hugo, what's going on? I go, well, your honor, you know, can I be frank with you? He goes, yeah, be frank. I go, I'm being framed here by LAPD. I go, why do you say that? I go, because I have this officer Perez you're saying that I had a gun. And that uh my that I had held it with my hand and threw it with my right hand, yet I asked for the fingerprints, and there are no prints on the gun. I go, is not that enough to throw this out of court and uh the judge looks at me and goes, "Well, Hugo, uh there's no law that states that uh, uh that you need prints on a gun The problem here is that a, a police officer's word is good enough to take to trial when Perez testified, Marcy my wife was able to see Perez in the hallways. she confronted him you know with my daughter and comes out to Perez and tells Perez. You know, it was, officer, why are you doing this to my husband? This is his daughter here, look at him. And Perez looks at her and goes, oh, you have a beautiful daughter. She looks like my daughter's age. Then my wife tells him, well, then you should understand. Why are you doing this to him? He didn't have a gun. And Perez tells her, well, maybe he didn't, but he wasn't, if he wasn't the way he was, I wouldn't have done this to him.
0: Madrid went to jail for three years. Some of Perez's victims were sentenced to time in excess of two decades. A year after he began exercising the full power of his corruption in Crash, his old partner David Mack re-enters the story. On November 6, 1997, which, for those of you keeping track, is eight months after the shootout between Gaines and Liga, three masked men entered a Bank of America in South Central Los Angeles the assistant bank manager who had been hired two months prior and just so happened to be mac's girlfriend buzzed them through two security doors and into the vault where they stole the 722 thousand dollars that had been delivered that morning the assistant manager just so happened to have scheduled twice the amount of cash than usual to arrive that day the men get away And two days later, David Mack, Ray Perez, and Veronica Caseta, one of Perez's many girlfriends and the woman who helped him sell his cocaine, take a trip to Las Vegas, where they spend thousands of dollars. Upon their return, Mack made a number of large purchases, including extensive home improvements and an SUV. A month later, the assistant manager girlfriend confessed and implicated Mac, who was arrested and refused to disclose where the money was, but I think we know. He was sentenced to 14 years in prison and was released in May 2010. The two other robbers were never caught or identified, but there's a strong suspicion that Perez was involved. In fact, that reminds me. Let's get back to him. The theft of the cocaine was closing in on Ray Perez. The LAPD tapped his phone, put a van outside his house, and on at least one occasion followed his car by helicopter. Going back to the bank angle, when police surrounded his house on August 25th, 1998, the first thing he asked was, is this about the bank robbery? Nope, it was about the eight pounds of cocaine. Perez was promptly arrested, and that December, he was tried for possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, as well as forgery and grand theft. Perez's lawyer twisted witness testimony and contorted evidence so that when the jury came back, it was deadlocked, 8-4. to A mistrial was declared, and Perez thought that perhaps he was in the clear. But in the time that the first trial had progressed, the government built its case for a second, much stronger prosecution. When they told Perez that they could prove that his wife, Denise, had knowledge of his illegal finances and they could send her to jail as well, Perez attempted to cut a deal, though initially the DA's office was not interested. Then Perez said that if the DA did not cooperate with him, he would refuse to reveal the name of an innocent man that he and his partner Nino Durden had shot, framed, and sent to prison for 23 years. The district attorney was forced to acquiesce. The man in question was Javier Orvando, though at the time of the incident, he was only 19. On October 12, 1996, Ray Perez and Nino Durden entered an abandoned apartment building for a stakeout. Inside, they found two homeless boys, one of whom was Javier Orvando. The officers handcuffed the boys and brought them into the room where they were conducting the operation, saying that they would let them out one at a time. They released the other boy, but kept Javier, as Perez began to rough him up and attempt to interrogate him. Orvando refused to cooperate, which enraged Perez, causing him and Durden to draw their guns and shoot Orvando once each in the chest. Perez then approached Orvando on the ground, picked him up by his shirt, put the gun to the boy's head, and fired. Somehow, Orvando did not die. And while he was lying there unconscious, Perez and Durden planted a gun on him. Orvando, who was now paralyzed and required a wheelchair, was charged with assaulting a police officer with a deadly weapon, and, thanks to the testimony of Ray Perez and Nino Durden, was sentenced to 23 years in prison. A week after this revelation, on September 16, 1999, Orvando was released, and would later receive a $15 million settlement from the city of Los Angeles. In the months that followed, Perez took a deal for five years in prison and immunity for all charges except murder, and sung like a canary, telling a story of wide systemic corruption at the LAPD, occurring with the knowledge and consent of department heads. According to Perez, between 70 and 90 percent of crash officers, not just at Rampart, but across the city, were involved in some kind of misconduct or criminal activity, ranging from drinking and doing drugs on the job, to stealing and dealing drugs, to the planting of evidence, to the cover-up of murder, and the issuance of false testimony. Looking through crash arrest records, he identified approximately 140 arrests and incidents, the majority by him and his partner, that were based on fabricated testimony or planted evidence. It resulted in nearly 100 convictions being overturned. Though Perez's testimony would implicate a wide array of officers across numerous divisions throughout the city, the chief of the LAPD, Bernard Parks, limited the investigation solely to the Rampart Station crash unit. And though dozens of officers stood credibly accused of committing crimes, I could only find record of five officers who were fired and eight who faced criminal prosecution. The LAPD review board's summary of the causes of the scandal did everything it could to obfuscate its nature as a systemic issue, insisting that it was just a few bad apples and clueless supervisors. After seeing the way that the department had covered up the full extent of the scandal, Russell Poole, who had been assigned to the Gaines case two years prior, resigned from the LAPD in disgust in 1999. In February 2000, before he was sentenced to five years in prison, Perez gave a tearful statement to the court, alleging his deep regret at the error of his ways. But sorry if I'm not the most sympathetic to a drug-dealing killer cop who's filled with regret and sorrow only after he's been caught. If you'd like to read it, it's linked in the show notes. And so, Ray Perez is carted off to jail, and a small number of other LAPD cops, including Officer Brian Liddy and Perez's partner Nino Durden, faced criminal charges. Though Perez did not testify at their trial, these cops did their best to both espouse their own innocence and attack the credibility of Perez's testimony. For example, Durden testified that there was no widespread corruption at the LAPD, and that all the corruption and violence stemmed from Perez, which sounds exactly like what someone who was trying to cover their ass would say. In 2002, he was convicted of perjury, filing false police reports, and a bevy of other charges, and was sentenced to three years in prison, being released in 2005. His sentence for many real crimes almost five times shorter than Javier Orvando's sentence for a fake one. In the case of the trial of Brian Liddy, the jury found him guilty, only for the judge to overturn the decision. In 2001, Ray Perez was paroled, serving only a little over a year of his five-year sentence. Due to potential threats to his life, a judge allowed him to serve his parole outside of California, He was rearrested in 2006 for lying about his legal name on a DMV form and was sentenced to 300 hours of community service. The current location of Rafael Perez, now known as Ray Lopez, is unknown. On November 2, 2000, the Los Angeles City Council voted unanimously to accept what is known as the Consent Decree, which brought the LAPD under the direct control of the Department of Justice, which had already been investigating the police force for rampant civil rights violations. The decree was lifted in May 2013, with precious little having been done to address the systemic issues that allowed for corruption and violence to flourish. In 2001, a lawyer named Gregory Yates secured an $11 million bulk settlement for a number of Rampart defendants, and the city of Los Angeles ultimately estimated that it would cost $125 million to pay out the damages. But no matter how generous a payout, it'll be impossible to restore the years they lost or give them the quality of life they had before their run-in with the LAPD. That. I think, just about does it for today. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and maybe learned a thing or two. If you did, then I would really appreciate it if you subscribed or shared the show with a friend. Thanks for listening. This is Ellis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.